This is a Federal News Network podcast. A patchwork of state privacy laws could lead to headaches and increasing compliance costs for businesses, including federal contractors. The Information Technology Innovation Foundation is out with a new report, though, advocating for a federal privacy law to replace various specific state mandates. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with ITIF Vice President Daniel Castro. The premise of the report is is asking the question, you know, does it matter that we're seeing all these different states passing privacy legislation? You know, there's, I think, a a common interest right now in, in seeing the United States update you know, how we protect consumer privacy. But the question is, is this going to come from the states or is this going to come from Congress? And so, you know, the the problem that we're seeing is that states are all moving forward very quickly. We've seen, you know, three states in the last two years pass major comprehensive privacy laws. And we've seen, you know, many more states. I think there were about 37 that have considered laws in the last three years. And, you know, if, if they start moving forward with competing laws, that creates a lot of duplicative regulation on, you know, businesses and and other organizations. What is that going to cost if we have states driving privacy law instead of, you know, seeing something at the federal level? And so in this report, we, you know, put together an economic model to estimate this cost over about a 15-year period that we expect to see states implement these laws. We're finding that these out-of-state costs, so the costs, not just, for example, if California passes the law, the, the effect it would have on California businesses, but the cost it would have to businesses in all the other states, what that would look like. And, you know, we're seeing that the cost would be between, you know, $98 billion to $112 billion annually. You know, so over a 10-year period, this is exceeding $1 trillion. And a substantial portion of this is going to small businesses. So really, you know, very high cost from privacy laws at the state level. And, you know, the, the point here is, you know, privacy laws might be expensive regardless, but if there's a way to do it much more efficiently through a federal law, then that should definitely be the first choice. Got it. And federal contractors have a big presence in some of the states your report highlights, like Virginia and California, for instance. Are there any specific impacts on the federal contracting industry? Yeah, you know, so many, you know, federal contractors get swept up in these laws. I mean, they have to deal with it from two angles. One, they have employees in these states. And whenever you're handling that employee data, it usually falls under some of these laws. And second, you know, they're often processing data on behalf of federal clients about individuals in these states, whether it's, you know, other vendors, you know, the citizens who are getting government services, whatever it is, but there's a lot of consumer data or personal data that gets implicated. And so, you know, when these laws are passed, you know, every business, including federal contractors, has to go down the list and see, well, well, how do we have to deal with this? You know, do we need to do a privacy audit? Do we need to provide a right to delete certain data? And how are we notifying consumers about that right? You know, do we need to have data protection officers um, in charge? And every state you add on to that, the complexity adds. Even if the laws are similar, they're never exact duplicates. And so, you know, it's a question of going back to the lawyers, going back to, you know, the regulators and making sure they're in compliance. And, and so that's just on the direct compliance part, right? But the, the other side of that is that a lot of these laws basically disincentivize the use of data for various purposes, whether it's advertising or uh, and marketing, you know, using some of the personal data that's collected for different types of analytics, it basically puts this threat 
over companies that they might be in violation of, of these different laws. So they proceed more cautiously. And they are especially proceeding cautiously when there's a lot of uncertainty about what might happen because of you know new laws that are coming down. And federal contractors also have to comply with the Privacy Act when they're handling personally identifiable information during the performance of a contract. Do you have any idea on how the provisions of the Privacy Act intersect with these newer state laws? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some similarities. You know, the Privacy Act outlines specific responsibilities for anyone dealing with, you know, federal government data. And there's some kind of key principles that have now been adopted into a lot of privacy laws. So the starting place is often the same. What's different, though, is the execution. So, I mean, the new laws are creating, you know, these you know, new rights to access information, right to data portability, right to delete data you know, those aren't things that, you know, necessarily existed in the same way in the Privacy Act. Or you're seeing things like very targeted laws, like in Illinois, where there's a new, well, it's not too new now, but it's being enforced more now, Biometrics Information Privacy Act, which is regulating specifically biometrics information. You know, that exposes companies to a lot of class action lawsuits. So, you know, it's just, it's this whole new level of uh, uncertainty and risk for businesses that are using personal data. I wanted to touch on the biometrics piece of this. You you mentioned the Illinois Biometrics Information Privacy Act, and your report goes in depth on that law. Obviously, there's a lot of concerns about how companies and the government are handling biometric information. Uh, How are regulators approaching biometrics today, and and what, what do companies have to do to comply? Well, biometrics is definitely one of the, the hottest issues and, and one that I think more states will likely be passing laws around. Even if they don't do comprehensive privacy laws, they might do targeted laws at this. So we've seen Illinois do this. We've seen Texas do this. And what's interesting in Illinois is that the courts ended up ruling recently that you could have a lawsuit against a company for violating BIPA, the, you know, the, the biometrics law, even if there was no harm to consumers or even if there was no harm to not even just consumer, often these are employees of the company. And so that opened the door to you know just a, a huge number of class action lawsuits, because basically it meant that if a company failed to exactly meet the provisions of gaining consent for processing biometric information, they could be exposed to just you know millions of dollars in lawsuits. So I mean, in the past year, Walmart, Six Flags, Wendy's, TikTok, ADP, you know, Facebook, tens of millions of dollars. In the case of Facebook, it was hundreds of millions of dollars in class action lawsuit settlements that they've paid out just because this law just kind of opened this this huge set of lawsuits. And it's often for something, you know, relatively minor. So for example, at Walmart, the cashiers had the option of checking out their register, you know, getting the cash for the register by either using a pin code or using a fingerprint to kind of sign in. And because they hadn't, you know, set the rules according to BIPA around getting that fingerprint, gaining consent before they allowed users to do it, you know, it was this this massive exposure for them. So that's the kind of law that I think is is really troubling, you know, has a huge cost to businesses, but other states are looking to replicate. I mean, there's a lot of trial lawyers who are pushing for that type of law in, in many more states because it's it's good business. Obviously, federal agencies collect biometrics on its workforce to do background checks and the like, and they often use contractors to do that work. How do these state laws affect that kind of work? Well, what happens is that, you know, the the operational costs go up and that's going to be reflected in, in budgets, right? And it's going to be reflected also in, in what the federal government, you know, can do and, and what it chooses to do. So, you know, federal contractors that are collecting biometric information on behalf of the government are going to have to be careful around these state laws. 
because they can still be implicated in them and they would be the ones facing the higher cost of a lawsuit you know not the government agency they're they're working on behalf of and so you know they're going to have to integrate that risk into, into their operations so it's it's something that will you know affect the entire industry and you know as i said as as more and more states do this just that complexity starts adding up because you know you you think you're in compliance in one state but you, now you have to not only be in compliance but you have to have this active monitoring situation where you have to understand what's changing. And some of these are changing very quickly. I mean, even in California, where they passed the CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act, then they passed an update to it two years later. You know, the actual regulations enforcing that have been, you know, in development for basically this full two years. So it's it's continuously evolving. Daniel Castro, vice president of the Information Technology Innovation Foundation, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses, and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best, and so we now have people who work for me all over the world, and as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five, um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling, not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with the Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. All I want for Christmas is a DWI. Yeah, said no one ever. Impaired driving kills the holiday spirit. Drive sober, drive smart. Extra enforcement now on Minnesota roads. A message from the Minnesota Department of Public Safety. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.